0: Section 25 of The Fable of the Bees by Bernard Mandeville This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. An Essay on Charity and Charity Schools Part 1 Charity is that virtue by which part of that sincere love we have for ourselves is transferred pure and unmixed to others, not tied to us by the bonds of friendship or consanguinity, and even mere strangers, whom we have no obligation to, nor hope or expect anything from. If we lessen ways the rigor of this definition, part of the virtue must be lost. What we do for our friends and kindred, we do partly for ourselves. When a man acts in behalf of nephews or nieces, and says, They are my brother's children, I do it out of charity, he deceives you. For if he is capable, it is expected from him and he does it partly for his own sake. If he values the esteem of the world, and is nice as to honor and reputation, he is obliged to have a greater regard to them than for strangers, or else he must suffer in his character. The exercise of this virtue relates either to opinion or to action, and is manifested in what we think of others or what we do for them. To be charitable, then, in the first place, we ought to put the best construction on all that others do or say that things are capable of. If a man builds a fine house, though he has not one symptom of humility, furnishes it richly, and lays out a good estate in plate and pictures, we ought not to think that he does it out of vanity, but to encourage artists, employ hands, and set the poor to work for the good of his country. And if a man sleeps at church, so he does not snore, we ought to think he shuts his eyes to increase his attention. The reason is because in our turn we desire that our utmost avarice should pass for frugality, and that for religion, which we know to be hypocrisy. Secondly, that virtue is conspicuous in us when we bestow our time and labor for nothing, or employ our credit with others in behalf of those who stand in need of it, and yet could not expect such an assistance from our friendship or nearness of blood. The last branch of charity consists in giving away, while we are alive, what we value ourselves, to such as I have already named, being contented rather to have and enjoy less than not relieve those who want, and shall be the objects of our choice. This virtue is often counterfeited by a passion of ours called pity or compassion, which consists in a fellow feeling and condolence for the misfortunes and calamities of others. All mankind are more or less affected with it, but the weakest minds generally the most. It is raised in us when the sufferings and misery of other creatures make so forcible an impression upon us as to make us uneasy. It comes in either at the eye or ear or both, and the nearer and more violently the object of compassion strikes those senses, the greater disturbance it causes in us, often to such a degree as to occasion great pain and anxiety. Should any of us be locked up in a ground room, where in a yard joining to it there was a thriving good-humored child at play, of two or three years old, so near us that through the grates of the window we could almost touch it with our hand, and if while we took delight in the harmless diversion and imperfect prittle-prattle of the innocent babe, a nasty overgrown sow should come upon the child, set it at a screaming, and frighten it out of its wits, it is natural to think that this would make us uneasy, and that with crying out and making all the menacing noises we could, we should endeavor to drive the sow away. But if this should happen to be an half-starved creature, that mad with hunger went roaming about in quest of food and we should behold the ravenous brute in spite of our cries and all the threatening gestures we could think of actually lay hold of the helpless infant destroy and devour it to see her widely open her destructive jaws and the poor lamb beat down with greedy haste to look on the defenceless posture of tender limbs first trampled on then tore asunder To see the filthy snout Digging in the yet living entrails Suck up the smoking blood And now and then to hear The crackling of the bones And the cruel animal with savage pleasure Grunt over the horrid banquet To hear and see all this What tortures would it give the soul Beyond expression Let me see the most shining virtue The moralists have to boast of So manifest either to the person Possessed of it Or those who behold his actions, let me see courage or the love of one's country so apparent without any mixture, cleared and distinct, the first from pride and anger, the other from the love of glory and every shadow of self interest, as this pity would be cleared and distinct from all other passions. There would be no need of virtue or self denial to be moved at such a scene, and not only a man of humanity, of good morals and commiseration, but likewise an highwayman, an housebreaker, or a murderer could feel anxieties on such an occasion. How calamitous soever a man's circumstances might be, he would forget his misfortunes for the time, and the most troublesome passion would give way to pity. And not one of the species has a heart so obdurate or engaged that it would not ache at such a sight as no language has an epithet to fit it. Many will wonder at what I have said of pity, that it comes in at the eye or ear, but the truth of this will be known when we consider that the nearer the object is, the more we suffer, and the more remote it is, the less we are troubled with it. To see people executed for crimes, if it is a great way off, moves us but little, in comparison to what it does when we are near enough to see the motion of the soul in their eyes, observe their fears and agonies, and are able to read the pangs in every feature of the face. When the object is quite removed from our senses, the relation of the calamities or the reading of them can never raise in us the passion called pity. We may be concerned at bad news, the loss and misfortunes of friends and those whose cause we espouse, but that is not pity but grief or sorrow, the same as we feel for the death of those we love, or the destruction of what we value. When we hear that three or four thousand men, all strangers to us, are killed with the sword, or forced into some river where they are drowned, we say, and perhaps believe, that we pity them, it is humanity bids us have compassion with the sufferings of others, and reason tells us that whether a thing be far off or done in our sight, our sentiments concerning it ought to be the same, and we should be ashamed to own that we felt no commiseration in us when anything requires it. He is a cruel man, he has no bowels of compassion. All these things are the effects of reason and humanity, but nature makes no compliments. When the object does not strike, the body does not feel it, and when men talk of pitying people out of sight, they are to be believed in the same manner as when they say that they are our humble servants. In paying the usual civilities at first meeting, those who do not see one another every day are often very glad and very sorry alternately, for five or six times together, in less than two minutes, and yet at parting carry away not a jot more of grief or joy than they met with. The same it is with pity, and it is a choice no more than fear or anger. Those who have a strong and lively imagination, and can make representations of things in their minds, as they would be if they were actually before them, may work themselves up into something that resembles compassion, but this is done by art, and often the help of a little enthusiasm, And is only an imitation of pity. The heart feels little of it, and it is as faint as what we suffer at the acting of a tragedy, where our judgment leaves part of the mind uninformed, and to indulge a lazy wantonness suffers it to be led into error, which is necessary to have a passion raised, the slight strokes of which are not unpleasant to us, when the soul is in an idle, unactive humor." As pity is often by ourselves and in our own cases mistaken for charity, so it assumes the shape and borrows the very name of it. A beggar asks you to exert that virtue for Jesus Christ's sake, but all the while his great design is to raise your pity. He represents to your view the first side of his ailments and bodily infirmities. In chosen words he gives you an epitome of his calamities, real or fictitious, and while he seems to pray to God that he will open your heart, he is actually at work upon your ears. The greatest profligate of them flies to religion for aid, and assists his cant with a doleful tone and a studied dismay of gestures, but he trusts not to one passion only, He flatters your pride with titles and names of honor and distinction. Your avarice he soothes with often repeating to you the smallness of the gift he sues for, and conditional promises of future returns, with an interest extravagant beyond the statute of usury, though out of the reach of it. People not used to great cities, being thus attacked on all sides, are commonly forced to yield and cannot help giving something, though they can hardly spare it themselves. How oddly are we managed by self-love! It is ever watching in our defense, and yet, to soothe the predominant passion, obliges us to act against our interest. For when pity seizes us, if we can but imagine that we contribute to the relief of him we have compassion with, and are instrumental to the lessening of his sorrows, it eases us and therefore pitiful people often give an alms when they really feel that they would rather not. When sores are very bare, or seem otherwise afflicting in an extraordinary manner, and the beggar can bear to have them exposed to the cold air, it is very shocking to some people. It is a shame, they cry, such sights should be suffered. The main reason is, it touches their pity feelingly and at the same time they are resolved, either because they are covetous, or count it an idle expense, to give nothing, which makes them more uneasy. They turn their eyes, and where the cries are dismal, some would willingly stop their ears if they were not ashamed. What they can do is to mend their pace, and be very angry in their hearts that beggars should be about the streets. But it is with pity as it is with fear. The more we are conversant with objects that excite either passion, the less we are disturbed by them, and those to whom all these scenes and tones are by custom made familiar, they make a little impression upon. The only thing the industrious beggar has left to conquer those fortified hearts, if he can walk either with or without crutches, is to follow close, and with uninterrupted noise tease and importune them, to try if he can make them buy their peace, Thus thousands give money to beggars from the same motive as they pay their corn-cutter, to walk easy. And many a halfpenny is given to impudent and designedly persecuting rascals whom, if it could be done handsomely, a man would cane with much greater satisfaction. Yet all this, by the courtesy of the country, is called charity. The reverse of pity is malice. I have spoke of it where I treat of envy. Those who know what it is to examine themselves will soon own that it is very difficult to trace the root and origin of this passion. It is one of those we are most ashamed of, and therefore the hurtful part of it is easily subdued and corrected by a judicious education. When anybody near us stumbles, it is natural even before reflection, to stretch out our hands to hinder, or at least break the fall, which shows that while we are calm we are rather bent to pity. But though malice by itself is little to be feared, yet assisted with pride it is often mischievous, and becomes most terrible when egged on and heightened by anger. There is nothing that more readily or more effectually extinguishes pity than this mixture, which is called cruelty from whence we may learn that to perform a meritorious action, it is not sufficient barely to conquer a passion, unless it likewise be done from a laudable principle, and consequently how necessary that clause was in the definition of virtue, that our endeavors were to proceed from a rational ambition of being good. Pity, as I have said somewhere else, is the most amiable of all our passions, and there are not many occasions on which we ought to conquer or curb it. A surgeon may be as compassionate as he pleases, so it does not make him omit or forbear to perform what he ought to do. Judges likewise and juries may be influenced with pity if they take care that plain laws and justice itself are not infringed, and do not suffer by it. No pity does more mischief in the world than what is excited by the tenderness of parents, and hinders them from managing their children as their rational love to them would require, and themselves could wish it. The sway likewise which this passion bears in the affections of women is more considerable than is commonly imagined, and they daily commit faults that are altogether ascribed to lust, and yet are in a great measure owing to pity. What I named last is not the only passion that mocks and resembles charity. Pride and vanity have built more hospitals than all the virtues together. Men are so tenacious of their possessions, and selfishness is so riveted in our nature, that whoever can but any ways conquer it shall have the applause of the public, and all the encouragement imaginable to conceal his frailty, and sooth any other appetite he shall have a mind to indulge. The man that supplies with his private fortune what the whole must otherwise have provided for, obliges every member of the society, and, therefore, all the world are ready to pay him their acknowledgment, and think themselves in duty bound to pronounce all such actions virtuous, without examining, or so much as looking into the motives from which they were performed. Nothing is more destructive to virtue or religion itself than to make men believe that giving money to the poor though they should not part with it till after death will make a full atonement in the next world for the sins they have committed in this a villain who has been guilty of a barbarous murder may by the help of false witnesses escape the punishment he deserved he prospers we will say heaps up great wealth and by the advice of his father confessor leaves all his estate to a monastery and his children beggars. What fine amends has this good Christian made for his crime, and what an honest man was the priest who directed his conscience? He who parts with all he has in his lifetime, whatever principle he acts from, only gives away what was his own, but the rich miser who refuses to assist his nearest relations while he is alive, though they never designedly disobliged him, and disposes of his money, For what we call charitable uses after his death, may imagine of his goodness what he pleases, but he robs his posterity. I am now thinking of a late instance of charity, a prodigious gift that has made a great noise in the world. I have a mind to set it in the light I think it deserves, and beg leave for once, to please pedants, to treat it somewhat rhetorically. That a man, with small skill in physic, and hardly any learning, should, by vile arts, get into practice, and lay up great wealth, is no mighty wonder. But that he should so deeply work himself into the good opinion of the world, as to gain the general esteem of a nation, and establish a reputation beyond all his contemporaries, with no other qualities but a perfect knowledge of mankind, and a capacity of making the most of it, is something extraordinary. If a man arrived to such a height of glory should be almost distracted with pride, sometime give his attendance on a servant or any mean person for nothing, and at the same time neglect a nobleman that gives exorbitant fees, at other times refuse to leave his bottle for his business, without any regard to the quality of the persons that sent for him, or the danger they are in, if he should be surly and morose, affect to be an humorist, treat his patients like dogs, though people of distinction, and value no man but what would deify him, and never call into question the certainty of his oracles, if he should insult all the world, affront the first nobility, and extend his insolence even to the royal family, if, to maintain as well as to increase the fame of his sufficiency he should scorn to consult with his betters on what emergency soever look down with contempt on the most deserving of his profession and never confer with any other physician but what will pay homage to his superior genius creep to his humour and never approach him but with all the slavish obsequiousness a court flatterer can treat a prince with if a man in his lifetime should discover on the one hand such manifest symptoms of superlative pride and an insatiable greediness after wealth at the same time, and, on the other, no regard to religion or affection to his kindred, no compassion to the poor, and hardly any humanity to his fellow-creatures, if he gave no proofs that he loved his country, had a public spirit, or was a lover of arts, of books, or of literature, what must we judge of his motive, the principle he acted from, when, after his death, we find that he has left a trifle among his relations who stood in need of it, and an immense treasure to an university that did not want it. Let a man be as charitable as is possible for him to be without forfeiting his reason or good sense. Can he think otherwise but that this famous physician did, in the making of his will, as in everything else, indulge his darling passion, entertaining his vanity with the happiness of the contrivance, When he thought on the monuments and inscriptions, with all the sacrifices of praise that would be made to him, and, above all, the yearly tribute of thanks, of reverence, and veneration that would be paid to his memory, with so much pomp and solemnity, when he considered how in all these performances wit and invention would be racked, art and eloquence ransacked to find out encomiums suitable to the public spirit the munificence and the dignity of the benefactor, and the artful gratitude of the receivers, when he thought on, I say, and considered these things, it must have thrown his ambitious soul into vast ecstasies of pleasure, especially when he ruminated on the duration of his glory, and the perpetuity he would by this means procure to his name. Charitable opinions are often stupidly false. When men are dead and gone, we ought to judge of their actions as we do of books, and neither wrong their understanding nor our own. The British Asclepius was undeniably a man of sense, and if he had been influenced by charity, a public spirit, or the love of learning, and had aimed at the good of mankind in general, or that of his own profession in particular, and acted from any of these principles, he could never have made such a will because so much wealth might have been better managed, and a man of much less capacity would have found out several better ways of laying out the money. But if we consider that he was undeniably a man of vast pride, as he was a man of sense, and give ourselves leave only to surmise that this extraordinary gift might have proceeded from such a motive, we shall presently discover the excellency of his parts, and his consummate knowledge of the world. For, if a man would render himself immortal be ever praised and deified after his death and have all the acknowledgment the honours and compliments paid to his memory that vain-glory herself could wish for, I do not think it in human skill to invent a more effectual method. Had he followed arms behaved himself in five-and-twenty sieges and as many battles with the bravery of an Alexander, and exposed his life and limbs to all the fatigues and dangers of war fifty campaigns together, or devoting himself to the muses, sacrificed his pleasure, his rest, and his health to literature, and spent all his days in a laborious study and the toils of learning, or else, abandoning all worldly interest, excelled in probity, temperance, and austerity of life, and ever trod in the strictest path of virtue he would not so effectually have provided for the eternity of his name, as after a voluptuous life, and a luxurious gratification of his passions, he has now done without any trouble or self-denial, only by the choice and the disposal of his money, when he was forced to leave it. A rich miser who was thoroughly selfish, and would receive the interest of his money even after his death, has nothing else to do than to defraud his relations, and leave his estate to some famous university. They are the best markets to buy immortality at with little merit. In them knowledge, wit, and penetration are the growth, I had almost said the manufacture of the place. Their men are profoundly skilled in human nature, and know what it is their benefactors want, and their extraordinary bounty shall always meet with an extraordinary recompense, And the measure of the gift is ever the standard of their praises, whether the donor be a physician or a tinker, when once the living witnesses that might laugh at them are extinct. I can never think on the anniversary of the Thanksgiving Day decreed to a great man, but it puts me in mind of the miraculous cures and other surprising things that will be said of him a hundred years hence, and I dare prognosticate that before the end of the present century he will have stories forged in his favor. For rhetoricians are never upon oath, that shall be as fabulous, at least, as any legends of the saints. Of all this our subtle benefactor was not ignorant. He understood universities, their genius, and their politics, and from thence foresaw and knew that the incense to be offered to him would not cease with the present or few succeeding generations, and that it would not only for the trifling space of three or four hundred years but that it would continue to be paid to him through all changes and revolutions of government and religion, as long as the nation subsists, and the island itself remains. It is deplorable that the proud should have such temptations to wrong their lawful heirs, for when a man in ease and affluence, brimful of vainglory, and humored in his pride by the greatest of a polite nation, has such an infallible security in petto for an everlasting homage and adoration to his manes to be paid in such an extraordinary manner he is like a hero in battle who in feasting of his own imagination tastes all the felicity of enthusiasm it buys him up in sickness relieves him in pain and either guards him against or keeps from his view all the terrors of death and the most dismal apprehensions of futurity should it be said that to be thus censorious and to look into matters and men's consciences with that nicety will discourage people from laying out their money this way and that let the money and the motive of the donor be what they will he that receives the benefit is the gainer i would not disown the charge but am of opinion that this is no injury to the public should one prevent men from crowding too much treasure into the dead stock of the kingdom There ought to be a vast disproportion between the active and unactive part of the society to make it happy, and where this is not regarded, the multitude of gifts and endowments may soon be excessive and detrimental to a nation. Charity, where it is too extensive, seldom fails of promoting sloth and idleness, and is good for little in the commonwealth but to breed drones and destroy industry. The more colleges and almhouses you build, the more you may. The first founders and benefactors may have just and good intentions, and would perhaps, for their own reputations, seem to labor for the most laudable purposes, but the executors of those wills, the governors that come after him, have quite other views, and we seldom see charities long applied as it was first intended they should be. I have no design that is cruel, nor the least aim that savors of inhumanity." To have sufficient hospitals for sick and wounded I look upon as an indispensable duty both in peace and war. Young children without parents, old age without support, and all that are disabled from working ought to be taken care of with tenderness and alacrity, but as, on the one hand, I would have none neglected that are helpless, and really necessitous without being wanting to themselves, so, on the other, I would not encourage beggary or laziness in the poor. All should be set to work that are anywise able, and scrutiny should be made even among the infirm. Employments might be found out for most of our lame, and many that are unfit for hard labor, as well as the blind, as long as their health and strength would allow of it. What I have now under consideration leads me naturally to that kind of distraction the nation has labored under for some time, the enthusiastic passion for charity schools." The generality are so bewildered with the usefulness and excellency of them that whoever dares openly to oppose them is in danger of being stoned by the rabble. Children that are taught the principles of religion and can read the word of God have a greater opportunity to improve in virtue and good morality and must certainly be more civilized than others that are suffered to run at random and have nobody to look after them. How perverse must be the judgment of those who would not rather see children decently dressed, with clean linen at least once a week, that, in an orderly manner, follow their master to church, than in every open place meet with a company of blackguards without shirts or anything whole about them, that, insensible of their misery, are continually increasing it with oaths and imprecations, can any one doubt but these are the great nursery of thieves and pickpockets?' What numbers of felons and other criminals have we tried and convicted every sessions? This will be prevented by charity schools, and when the children of the poor receive a better education, the society will, in a few years, reap the benefit of it, and the nation be cleared of so many miscreants as now this great city and all the country about it are filled with. This is the general cry and he that speaks the least word against it an uncharitable hard-hearted and inhuman if not a wicked profane and atheistical wretch as to the comeliness of the sight nobody disputes it but i would not have any nation pay too dear for so transient a pleasure and if we might set aside the finery of the show everything that is material in this popular oration might soon be answered as to religion The most knowing and polite part of a nation have everywhere the least of it. Craft has a greater hand in making rogues than stupidity, and vice, in general, is nowhere more predominant than where arts and sciences flourish. Ignorance is, to a proverb, counted to be the mother of devotion, and it is certain that we shall find innocence and honesty nowhere more general than among the most illiterate, the poor silly country people. The next to be considered are the manners and civility that by charity schools are to be grafted into the poor of the nation. I confess that, in my opinion, to be in any degree possessed of what I named is a frivolous, if not a hurtful quality. At least nothing is less requisite in the laborious poor. It is not compliments we want of them, but their work and assiduity. But I give up this article with all my heart. Good manners, we will say, are necessary to all people, but which way will they be furnished with them in a charity school? Boys there may be taught to pull off their caps promiscuously to all they meet, unless it be a beggar, but that they should acquire in it any civility beyond that I cannot conceive. The master is not greatly qualified, as may be guessed by his salary, and if he could teach them manners he has not time for it. While they are at school they are either learning or saying their lessons to him, or employed in writing or arithmetic, and as soon as school is done, they are as much at liberty as other poor people's children. It is precept, and the example of parents, and those they eat, drink, and converse with, that have an influence upon the minds of children, reprobate parents, that take ill courses, and are regardless to their children, will not have a mannerly civilized offspring though they went to a charity school till they were married. The honest, pains-taking people, be they never so poor, if they have any notion of goodness and decency themselves, will keep their children in awe, and never suffer them to rake about the streets and lie out at nights. Those who will work themselves and have any command over their children will make them do something or other that turns to profit as soon as they are able, be it never so little." and such are so ungovernable, that neither words nor blows can work upon them, no charity school will mend, nay, experience teaches us that among the charity boys there are abundance of bad ones that swear and curse about, and, bar the clothes, are as much blaggard as ever Tower Hill or St. James produced. I am now come to the enormous crimes and vast multitude of malefactors, that are all laid upon the want of this notable education. That abundance of thefts and robberies are daily committed in and about the city, and great numbers yearly suffer death for those crimes is undeniable. But because this is ever hooked in, when the usefulness of charity schools is called in question, as if there was no dispute, but they would in a great measure remedy, and in time prevent those disorders... I intend to examine into the real causes of those mischiefs so justly complained of, and doubt not but to make it appear that charity schools, and everything else that promotes idleness and keeps the poor from working, are more accessory to the growth of villainy than the want of reading and writing, or even the grossest ignorance and stupidity. Here I must interrupt myself to obviate the clamors of some impatient people, who, upon reading of what I said last, will cry out, "'that far from encouraging idleness "'they bring up their charity children to handicrafts, "'as well as trades, and all manner of honest labor. "'I promise them that I shall take notice of that hereafter, "'and answer it without stifling the least thing "'that can be said in their behalf. "'In a populous city it is not difficult for a young rascal "'that has pushed himself into a crowd, "'with a small hand and nimble fingers, "'to whip away a handkerchief or snuff-box,' from a man who is thinking on business, and regardless of his pocket. Success in small crime seldom fails of ushering in greater, and he that picks pockets with impunity at twelve is likely to be a housebreaker at sixteen, and a thorough-paced villain long before he is twenty. Those who are cautious as well as bold, and no drunkards, may do a world of mischief before they are discovered, and this is one of the greatest inconveniencies of such vast overgrown cities as london or paris that they harbor rogues and villains as granaries do vermin they afford a perpetual shelter to the worst of people and are places of safety to thousands of criminals who daily commit thefts and burglaries and yet by often changing their places of abode may conceal themselves for many years and will perhaps forever escape the hands of justice unless by chance they are apprehended in a fact, and when they are taken, the evidences perhaps want clearness, or are otherwise insufficient. The depositions are not strong enough. Juries, and often judges, are touched with compassion. Prosecutors, though vigorous at first, often relent before the time of trial comes on. Few men prefer the public safety to their own ease. A man of good nature is not easily reconciled with taking away of another man's life, though he has deserved the gallows. To be the cause of anyone's death, though justice requires it, is what most people is startled at, especially men of conscience and probity, when they want judgment or resolution. As this is the reason that thousands escape that deserve to be capitally punished, so it is likewise the cause that there are so many offenders who boldly venture, in hopes that if they are taken they shall have the same good fortune of getting off. But if men did imagine, and were fully persuaded, that as surely as they committed a fact that deserved hanging, so surely they would be hanged, executions would be very rare, and the most desperate felon would almost as soon hang himself as he would break open a house. To be stupid and ignorant is seldom the character of a thief. Robberies on the highway, and other bold crimes, are generally perpetrated by rogues of spirit, and a genius. And villains of any fame are commonly subtle cunning fellows, that are well versed in the method of trials, and acquainted with every quirk in the law that can be of use to them, that overlook not the smallest flaw in an indictment, and know how to make an advantage of the least slip of an evidence, and everything else that can serve their turn to bring them off. It is a mighty saying, that it is better that five hundred guilty people should escape, than that one innocent person should suffer. This maxim is only true as to futurity, and in relation to another world, but it is very false in regard to the temporal welfare of society. It is a terrible thing a man should be put to death for a crime he is not guilty of. Yet so oddly circumstances may meet in the infinite variety of accidents, that it is possible it should come to pass, all the wisdom that judges, and consciousness that juries may be possessed of, notwithstanding. But where men endeavor to avoid this, with all the care and precaution human prudence is able to take, should such a misfortune happen perhaps once or twice in half a score years, on condition that all that time justice should be administered with all the strictness and severity, and not one guilty person suffered to escape with impunity, it would be a vast advantage to a nation, not only as to the securing of every one's property and the peace of the society in general, but would likewise save the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, of necessitous wretches that are daily hanged for trifles, and who would never have attempted anything against the law, or at least have ventured on capital crimes, if the hopes of getting off, should they be taken, had not been one of the motives that animated their resolution. Therefore where the laws are plain and severe, all the remissness in the execution of them, lenity of juries, and frequency of pardons are in the main a much greater cruelty to a populous state or kingdom than the use of racks and the most exquisite torments another great cause of those evils is to be looked for in the want of precaution in those that are robbed and the many temptations that are given abundance of families are very remiss in looking after the safety of their houses some are robbed by the carelessness of servants others for having grudged the price of bars and shutters. Brass and pewter are ready money, and they are everywhere about the house. Plate, perhaps, and money are better secured, but an ordinary lock is soon opened when once a rogue is got in. It is manifest, then, that many different causes concur, and several scarce avoidable evils contribute to the misfortune of being pestered with pilferers, thieves, and robbers, which all countries ever were, and ever will be, more or less, in and near considerable towns, more especially vast and overgrown cities. It is opportunity makes the thief, carelessness and neglect in fastening doors and windows, the excessive tenderness of juries and prosecutors, the small difficulty of getting a reprieve and frequency of pardons, but above all, the many examples of those who are known to be guilty, and destitute both of friends and money, And yet by imposing on the jury baffling the witnesses or other tricks and stratagems find out means to escape the gallows these are all strong temptations that conspire to draw in the necessitous who want principle and education to these you may add as auxiliaries to mischief an habit of sloth and idleness and strong aversion to labor and assiduity which all young people will contract that are not brought up to downright working or at least kept employed most days in the week and the greatest part of the day. All children that are idle, even the best of either sex, are bad company to one another whenever they meet. It is not, then, the want of reading and writing, but the concurrence and complication of more substantial evils that are the perpetual nursery of abandoned profligates in great and opulent nations, And whoever would accuse ignorance, stupidity, and dastardness as the first, and what the physicians call the procatratic cause, let him examine into the lives, and narrowly inspect the conversations and actions of ordinary rogues and our common felons, and he will find the reverse to be true, and that the blame ought rather to be laid on the excessive cunning and subtlety, and too much knowledge in general." which the worst of miscreants and the scum of the nation are possessed of. End of section 25